One of the most important parts of starting a new entrepreneurial venture is getting the finances right. And more oftentimes than not, young entrepreneurs are screwing this up. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into some of the most important factors in running good financials in your business with Greg Crabtree, the author of Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profit, who is somebody I've looked up to and has made a huge difference in my life after reading this book. I think you guys are really going to like it. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. It's wonderful that so many of you have stepped up and registered to partner in future multifamily opportunities together. We follow a very strict vetting process when selecting our operating partners, and all of which have a serious track record, at least five years of experience, at least 2,500 doors that they've actually managed and owned, and over $250,000 of assets under management. These kind of guidelines help make sure that we are investing together in some phenomenal, phenomenal deals. And you can learn more by registering at theinvestormindset.com slash invest. These institutional style investments bring benefits to busy professionals and real estate entrepreneurs looking to reduce their taxes and increase their returns. And you can join us by getting started at theinvestormindset.com slash invest. I look forward to seeing you on the next deal. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pesavento. And today I've got a very special guest, Greg Crabtree. How are you doing today, Greg? Very good. Very good. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here with us, because as you guys may know, Greg Crabtree is a speaker, author, entrepreneur, and financial expert. And his firm, Carr, Riggs, and Ingram is a CPA firm dedicated to helping entrepreneurs build the economic engines of their business. And in 2011, Greg released his first book, which completely changed the way that I looked at business called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profit which shares some core principles about how to turn your business into a wealth building engine. And then this year, right now, he's got the 2.0 version of Simple Numbers coming out. Simple Numbers 2.0 Rules for Elite Profit and cash flow. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about what changed. I highly recommend that you guys buy this book because it's a game changer. But really, at the core, your book takes complex subjects and breaks it down into a simple process for entrepreneurs to use. And it really changed the way that I look at business uh, and the way that I run my business. And so as real estate entrepreneurs seem to get this wrong, especially earlier in their careers, uh, when they're in hustle mode, can you tell us a little bit about the philosophy? behind simple numbers and what it's all about? Well, you know, the idea is that, you know, you're going to take simple economic ideas that the best of the best entrepreneurs intuitively know. And so I'm kind of democratizing the, the world of entrepreneurism of, of taking what are the best entrepreneurs know intuitively and help those who may not know it intuitively, but help them avoid the avoidable mistakes. It, it, I mean, it's not rocket science at the end of the day, but we're, these are principles that are not taught in traditional finance schools. They're not widely known. And most successful entrepreneurs can't actually tell you what they innately know. And so as I've mm -hmm. had the privilege of working with some of these you know, folks over my long career, 
you know, I just started studying them and, and said, you know, so I've learned more from my clients than I ever learned from any classroom, you know, that, that taught me anything on accounting. And, and so as you, you kind of look at it, um, you know, you, you kind of, it, it kind of, as I'm thinking about it, it, it it's kind of like, it, it's my own Napoleon Hill experience of, you know, his studying, uh, you know, Rockefeller. Well, you know, what I've done is study the, the best of the entrepreneurs and said, what actually is going through their mind of how they optimize this business and what are the choices that they're making? And then how do I create a way for people to know that? Because it, it's not a thousand things. It's a handful of things that, that makes every business or investment activity, you know, really work well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. We're definitely going to talk about what some of those things are. So really you discovered this through working with you know, very successful clients. You're, you're often a, a speaker with the entrepreneur EO organization, uh, and you're working with some phenomenal entrepreneurs there. So tell us what, what is simple numbers all about? What, what are some of those basic pillars that really, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs intuitively know. And we, when we read it, we'd say obviously, but many people still aren't applying those in their businesses. First, you've got to take your data and break it into a simple, usable model of think of it like a vehicle. You know, there's an engine and there's a chassis. And so we've simplified the engine of the business to say every business activity has three core components to the engine. There's revenue, there's direct cost, and there's labor. That's it. Everything falls into one of those three buckets. And so the net of those is the output of the business engine. That's your horsepower. And then all the other costs is your operating expenses. It's GNA, overhead, wh whatever you want to call it. We call them operating expenses, and that's the chassis of the business. And I've just got to, I've got to right size my my engine to the chassis. I can't have a bigger engine than the chassis can support, and I can't have a, a bigger chassis than what the engine can support. And once you get that model down, then it's tuning, and you're really, um, you know, trying to to take that and optimize it and and once you understand it's these handful of things and, and these rules, then you you get the production engine part. But the really the thing that I've learned in the last 10 years, it's the, the core component of Simple Numbers 2.0, is also tying that output of the engine to the actual investment. And so looking at it, you know, so in the new book, I really accentuate the concept of return on invested capital which it was a calculation that I did in college. I've never done it for a business until I was actually alerted to this. Um, I, one of the things in EO, I get to chair an executive ed program at Horton Business School, you know, for EO. And so I get to go hang out with like real professors. So a kid from a chicken farm who, you know, just has an undergrad degree. So I, I get to rub shoulders with, with the legit professors, but, you know, I've been able to share a few things with them that's opened their eyes and, um, you know, but this one I'll have to give credit to Dr. David Wessels. Uh, he was the lead professor in that course. Great, great teacher. Uh, understands a lot of stuff more than I'll ever know. And and he was teaching in the first years of the class and talking about this idea of return on invested capital. And and so I go back and I start one of the things that I do a lot of that's not common in our profession. Well, I have access to all this data. We organize it in the simple numbers format for everybody, so it makes it easy for us to aggregate and study. And so what we were able to do is actually go back and study and say, well, what is the normative return on invested capital of any entrepreneur or privately held business? And stunningly, the number that we came up with, the minimum return on invested capital to be a sustainable business in the U.S. market is 50%. 
the actual average for this hundred companies that we're tracking, you know, is closer between 75 to hundred percent. There's a few models that actually achieve over hundred percent return. And, and so when you think about it in that way, as an investor, why would you invest in anything until you had optimized how far you wanted to take your business? Now, granted, you, money doesn't change everything. You can throw a lot of money at something and it ain't moving it. It's all about execution. You know, but to the extent that the business needs that in reinvestment, the first, this, and, and this was what fascinated about finding this, is it really helps build that argument for the entrepreneur to, to make the best choices of the best returns and then work your way down priority from there. And so from an entrepreneur standpoint, a lot of my, my clients, you know, once their business really is not accepting any more capital, you can't move it by capital. It's only by execution. Well, then they're, they're throwing off free cash flow. And so what else are you going to invest in? I would say primarily 80% of the, the entrepreneurs I work with, the fir their first choice is probably to go to real estate because they don't trust the stock market and it's something tangible that they can put their hands on and they see it. And so, so I've had to help them understand, well, here's the return on investment that you get in an operating business when it's operated effectively. Here's the return on investment that you get in real estate, cash on cash return, those types of things. And in that way, they start to understand, here's how you compare those things and say, which is the best opportunity and what do I like to do? And it, it really helps them get some clarity about, okay, well, this makes sense. Well, it really helps make it clear what how to compare apples to apples because, you know, majority of the time, if you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, while you're in growth and scaling mode, investing in your business is going to lead to the largest ROI. If you're looking at specifically ROI and you're not worried about diversification, or you don't want alternative uh, streams of income. But once you hit that kind of capping off point, as you've mentioned, because you've you've gotten really clear on the numbers that you're working from, which we're going to talk about in a second. It makes so much sense that smart business owners start to track what that return on capital invested is because as real estate investors, it's pretty common for us. If we're flipping lots of houses and you know we're borrowing money uh, or we're raising money yeah. or we're doing any of these different things, we might be into a deal with uh, no money in. Right. right. It's not uncommon in the single family world. It's less common in the syndication world because, of course, we want to be uh, have skin in the game with all of our investors. But I think that really is going to change a lot of people's perspective when they can start to see, OK, well, I put one hundred thousand dollars in my business and I'm making 50 percent or more on it. And, and if you're not making that, then clearly there's a hole. There's a problem somewhere in your business that you need to solve. And so talk to yeah. us a little bit about how you guys go about tracking data or some of those data points that you, that are kind of just the, the basics that are a must if you're going to follow the simple numbers formula. So if you, so if you think about it, there's two ways to attack return. I can improve my net profit or I can improve my capital position. I can find a way to put less capital in it and turn it over. And so most entrepreneurs are blind, whereas a real estate investor understands, what's my down payment? So what I've really tried to do is say, well, okay, well, if you understand, I got to put 20% down, you know, to finance this property for real estate, well, it's the same concept, but there are ways to actually sometimes put less down. And, and so the idea, and, and do it responsibly where I'm, I'm doing it for free. 
And so in essence, we've taken the balance sheet, that sheet that entrepreneurs never look at, and we said we break it, we break it down into three components. There's trade capital. These are the things that turn over in the business, AR, inventory, minus accounts payable, minus deferred revenue, customer deposits, and those things. It's that, it's that net number. Now, what we are taught in college in the world of finance is this concept of working capital. I will tell you right now, just do not ever talk about working capital ever again because it's a flawed concept. Mm. And what's flawed about it is this. Working capital is the, is my trade capital number, but it has cash on the asset side and line of credit debt and current notes payable on the uh, liability side. It's like, no, no. I understand why the financial guys put it in there, but they're solving a different problem that, than you're trying to solve. You're trying to say, what is the market turnover of assets and liabilities that, that turns over with my business? Some businesses don't carry AR. Some businesses don't get any trade credit. Some businesses don't carry inventory. But each business has its own signature. But if I work effectively with customers and vendors, I can shrink that trade capital number. And the reason why I don't include cash or debt is because those are choices. I can choose how much cash I have in, in my business. I can choose how much debt I use in the business. That shouldn't be, that's not part of a market force. And so I've got to deal with that market force piece. Second piece is then I'm looking at infrastructure capital. Do I have equipment facilities minus the debt associated with it? So I link the debt to the asset. The, the, you know, this is where Pacioli invented accounting in the 1400s. We haven't evolved very far in accounting since then. Mm. And it's like, this is, we should be connecting these things, not mm. keeping them in separate places and nobody understands them. And then the third piece is buffer capital. So that's cash minus line of credit. That's every account on the balance sheet in three buckets. And it's not a left and right of the balance sheet. It's three, three chunks of capital that you have in the business. And they're definable and they're manageable. Once I know those, then what is my yield that I'm getting off the deployment of those assets? Simple as that. And, and as you start to understand it, like I said, we've taught clients how to have less trade capital invested so that they can live off of a thinner amount of profit. And then once you get that alignment of 50% or better return on investment of profit to capital, now I'm ready to scale. And so uh, actually uh, from the original bio, you said that my, uh, I changed the subtitle because as we started getting close to the, finishing the book, the last thing you do is the final naming of it. And we actually call it rules for smart scaling. Mm. Uh, and and we, we think this is actually the right way of looking at it because it, the easiest way to scale is have the least amount of capital drag to what you're doing. And I'll give you a good example. You know, so we've identified, we've got some clients in multiple location real, uh, uh, retail. And so we've got the ones that put their money up for tenant improvements in, in their building to open up a new location. They, they meet the 50% return standard. And what we've determined is if they can actually find a financing source, which there are some out there, there's, there's an actually, you know, there's, there's an SBA program, uh, 7A program that you can sometimes use to do 100% financing with the right lenders uh, on that to where you can turn that tenant improvement into an operating cost which is really what it is because it really should be spread over the life of the lease as a cost it is, you know, and we don't, we get hung up on this idea of it being debt. No, it's really pseudo rent is really what it is. And so then I'm lowering my profit number 
but I'm also significantly lowering my investment in my upfront investment in the business. And so what we showed this one retailer that in their next location, if you finance the tenant improvements over the five year lease term, you'll actually increase your return to 150% return. Now think about it like this. If you're executionally trying to grow a multi-location retail business, would you rather have something that gets out of the ground with little to no capital input and gets 150% return? Or do you want to have something that requires a $250,000 cash chunk every time you decide to say go, and it's only going to get you a 50% return? I think that's a pretty easy decision to make of saying, you know, I mean, I, I'm committed to the amount either way. So I'm not changing your commitment. Yeah, it's super, it's super easy because when you can see that when debt is used in a very intelligent way, when you're actually right. connecting that to real numbers from your business and you're able to see that I'm going to spend this money either way. But if I finance it, I actually leverage and lever up the return because I'm borrowing money at one set of dollars and I'm getting a 50 percent return on the dollars that I use Then I'm actually able to make the spread. And that's really syndication 101. That's real estate investing 101. Whenever we're buying a property, we usually getting it. But a lot of business owners aren't thinking like that. So I think it's brilliant that you're able to recognize this and help people kind of get to that place. So for the business owners that are listening and for the real estate entrepreneurs that are listening and they don't feel like they have a good hold of their numbers, they might consider themselves the hustlers. They might be the grinders. They might be the people who are going out there and they're getting deals done and they're making money despite the fact of their lack of financial knowledge. Where do they start and how do they start putting together a process so that they can manage their business like a business? Well, and so in, in, in terms of real estate, and if you're looking at that, so I, I have my clients, I, I call them my real estate entrepreneurs. And so I, I try to get them to think differently. And so, so there, there is a transactional element to real estate and then there's an operating element to real estate. And so if you think about it, we have helped a couple of clients that were kind of in multiple steps of the real estate process. So they were developers and then they also managed the construction and then they also owned some of the property and then they also managed the property. Well, guess what? I just described four different business activities. So to be a developer is a services business. Now, the, fa the great failing of developer mindset is you don't take in, there's a portion of that developer fee you got to live off of if you're a developer. You need to have food. You need to have shelter. And it's the developers who take their whole development fee and throw it into the deal. You're forcing yourself to have to keep selling off your cattle to actually live rather than, well, let's milk some of them and, and, and see if we can actually, you know, live a little bit longer. And, and so the idea is finding this balance between what is, what is the amount that I need to live off of? And I, I am essentially, I'm creating an operational model for a developer to say, this is the amount that you take as a salary you live off of. And then you're taking the profits of the, of the development business to buy into the deals and, and have long-term investment. So that's how I saw them. So then you go to the construction side. Okay, I'm managing construction. Well, guess what? That's a your, your general contractor. So operate like a general contractor and understand that there's requirements for you to be profitable. You got to run it like a responsible contractor. What parts do you want to self-perform? What parts do you want to subcontract? But at the end of the day, you should make an acceptable profit of what a general contractor is going to do or else don't be in that business. Let somebody else do it who knows what the hell they're doing. 
then you move to the next piece is, is okay, well, I'm in, I'm now an investor in the, in the building. That's probably the easiest part to understand. You know, either you earned your way into your ownership or you leverage, you put some money down and you leverage the rest. That's fine. And so you just got to look at that property and say, rule number one, don't fall in love with it. It won't, know, it won't love you back. The moment it stops performing well, refresh your portfolio and sell it and move on and do the next thing. And then the last piece is being the property manager. And we see a lot of this. I've actually got quite a few clients in the property management world. And and, and what we've really shown them is it's actually one of the easiest businesses to turn into the metrics of it. And I'll give you this. There's a simple metric for running a property management business. It's called a, a labor efficiency ratio of a two. Now, in property management, we don't even make a distinction between direct labor and management labor. We just say of all of the simple thing that you got to understand that you cannot violate in a property management business is for every dollar of management fee that I get for running the, the, the managing the properties, I can only spend 50 cents of that dollar of revenue for, uh, for labor to run it. I got to make everything fit within that parameter at a minimum. And if I'm a little bit above it too, that's great. I'll make a little more profit. But but we've monitored a lot of these businesses, and you know you can run a one to five million dollar property management business and make fifteen to twenty five percent profit on it. But you got to stick to the two to one labor efficiency ratio, and that's that's the key. That's definitely an important piece. And what you're really underlining there is because you're getting so clear about your numbers, you're able to directly see and use some of these ratios to understand how you back into what you can actually afford to pay for people. And this right. is a concept that I really appreciated from the book. Uh, the, your first book was this idea of a salary cap. You know, we see all the sports teams, they run with a salary cap. You need to work within the cap. And so if you spend a lot of money on one player, then you're going to have to spend less money elsewhere. Exactly. Kind of tell us a little bit about how that plays in the business world and how, how some of our investors or real estate operators can start thinking about that when they're looking to scale. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in, in terms of if you're, if you're running an operating real estate activity, you've got to look at it from that same standpoint. Now, what we, what we always tell people is, Labor efficiency ratios, uh, I, like I said, I can, I've can. i looked at enough property management businesses. I can tell you that one's a hard two to one. So I, I you know, for, I got to produce $2 of management fee for every dollar of, of all labor in, in that one. For other businesses, it's a little more complex. We take labor and break it into two components. And you'll see that more in detail in the second book of direct labor and management labor. And, and so we hold direct labor accountable to gross margins, so revenue after cost of goods sold. And then we hold management labor accountable to what we call contribution margins, so gross margin minus direct labor is that output of the business engine. And that's what management labor is responsible to. What we find is, is direct labor is all over the board given the business models. I mean, you know, from a staffing model is usually the lowest you know, it's in the dollar thirty, dollar forty range, which is pretty dreadful. Um, you know, to you know, you can have some business models in the fours or fives or sixes. You know that, but typically, when when la direct labor efficiency gets above a two, you're doing you got to enhance it one of two ways. You either got to enhance it with with extreme processes that are better than the market, or got to enhance it with technology. And, and so um, that that's really the things that typically moves that number up scale, you know, to some degree. 
What we find is management labor efficiency, that contribution margin per management labor dollar, it's actually a fairly consistent number for most businesses between a four and a five. Once you get to that, once you get out of the black hole and you get from four to five million and up, you know, that that number kind of settles in in that range. Probably the only exception are businesses like in the professional services world where the owner of the business is a high income producer. They're really a direct labor person. And then you you just got you know, some admin staff that's your management labor. So that's the only time you see a high, super high management labor efficiency. But here's the thing we always tell people. And and so when you're saying when you're saying, but just to just to cut in here for a second, and when you're saying management labor is at a four to a five, you're saying that for every dollar, you're saying for every five to six dollars earned, you're spending one dollar on management. Or is it actually the flip? So so for every for every five dollars of contribution margin, kind of like what most people call gross uh, gross profit. Mm-hmm. So revenue minus COGS minus direct labor, it's that number. I need $5 of contribution margin for every dollar of, of, of uh, management labor. And, and so that's, that's kind of a, a general ratio. Now, what you're going to see, there's actually a pretty close number on management labor too, though, that if, and, and this is where revenue is a really slippery number to base anything on. So that's why I like margin because you filtered through the pass through kind of crap, you know, that goes mm-hmm. to the business model, but we actually see pretty close to an eight to a 10 to one of revenue to management labor in many models. But here's the thing I will tell people, you actually have the answer in your own data right now. If you actually took your data and put it and bucketed it the way that I, I show you in, in, the, in both books, and you actually break it between direct and management, you're going to be able to look back in time. Don't look at monthly data. Look at least rolling three and preferably rolling 12 data. But you're going to look back in time and say, when were we at our best? And why are we not at it now? And, and it's because you've allowed some things to transpire or you've uh, allowed people to be unproductive. Or you're spending money in advance of, of where you want to get to in the next thing. And this is kind of another new discovery that we have in, in 2.0 is this concept of launch capital. So as I've talked about before, you got trade capital, buffer capital, infrastructure capital on the balance sheet. Well, there's a fourth capital that hides on your P&L. Now, they don't teach this in school because they really don't know it. These are people that probably hadn't even run a business before. The thing is, is 90 plus percent of us grow our businesses by speculative expenses spent before they produce anything. Just think about it. I mean, you know, if you spend marketing, you know, does every person that you hire that works for you, are they immediately productive the first day that they show up? Mm -hmm. No, these are, they're not. And they weren't needed to do what you were doing at the moment. They're needed to do the next thing that you do. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? That's the Mm -hmm. definition of capital, but it's an expense in your books. And so what we've done is develop some techniques to isolate these things to say, here's the normative run rate of your P&L. Here's the stuff I'm making bets on. So now let's talk about how good I am at betting and let me improve my odds at betting. And I'm telling you, the results are stunning that once we get people to understand and isolate their bets, I've seen they either become better at betting or they become more cautious 
at bedding. And, and we, we've had people, you know, once we quantified what it is that they're looking at to grow their business, they go, no, that's not going to produce that much. So I don't think we're going to do that. And it's like, good. Yeah. It's like either one of those outcomes is actually phenomenal because what you're really getting to is that once you're able to start seeing clearly what your numbers are and, you know, for any of the business owners that are listening, you know, there's been times when you've been scaling and you've been spending a lot of money, you've been hiring people. And all of a sudden the books are showing that you're not profitable, but part of the business that you're not making that bet on is still producing in the exact same way, but there wasn't necessarily a good way to track that. So I definitely can appreciate that. So there's something that you often talk about, which I think is really important for all small business owners to think about. And it's this idea of making sure that you're paying yourself Mm -hmm. a living wage. That, that you're paying yourself, not living wage, but you're paying yourself the accurate wage of what that role would be. Well, it, it really comes with, you know, to us, the first step is, are your numbers speaking truth? And, and so are you creating any distortions? The number one distortive thing that entrepreneurs do to their business is not pay themselves a market wage. 10% pay above a market wage. And so you got to adjust that back out. And then the other 90% are underpaying a wage and they're giving themselves too easy of a layup to hit a profit target because they're, they're really taking it out the back end of the business as a distribution. And it's like, and, and, you know, and I do make an argument in the first book about well, one, there are some tax issues in the U S that could be, make that an issue, but just forget the tax aspect of it. I mean, I, I really, I mean, I, I'm batting a thousand on this. Every time I've gotten a client to pay themselves in market-based wage that was underpaying themselves or even not paying at all, in the next year, they not only made that wage, but they made more profit too, because now they're looking at truth in their financials. And when you start to look at it that way, you can really start to to not have to do these mental Olympics and, and, and play the excuse game of, well, we really didn't make that much profit or yeah, we really made more profit than that. And it's like, well, listen, how about we just, we just show how much we really made and let's work with truth. And it's a whole lot easier to plan that way. Well, I, I just have to re-articulate uh, how important this book is to all of you folks who are listening, even if you're just on the investing side to understand the numbers that go into business, but especially if you're an operator, especially if you're running a business, even if you're running a side hustle, you need to read this book because it will completely uh, change uh, and uh, re-educate you on some of the most important things of accounting. And when it comes to running a business, the finances or everything, everything really comes down to. And so uh, for the folks that are looking to learn specifically about how to put their numbers in the kind of process that you really talk about in the book. Obviously they can buy a copy of the book. What are some other ways that they could go about doing that or how could they find somebody that can help them with that? Well, I mean, certainly we're, uh, our, our firm is there to, to help folks. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at it from the standpoint that I put it out there. I mean, we've got tons of people who use our process who've never contacted me to do anything for them. And I run into them and they tell me their stories of how much it's changed their life and changed their business. And that makes me happy. I'm, I'm glad, you know, but there's, there's plenty of people who just, they're not confident with it. And, you know, we've got services that we can provide to, to help them, you know, go through it. And here's the one thing I would say is the most common res- result is a lot of people are hesitant to come to us and say, well, I want to clean up my numbers first. I said, listen, one of, one of my team's best skill sets is we, we can make sense out of bad data. 
That's we're we're good at that because the thing is is if you go to an accountant and you say clean up my books well you don't really know what you're going to get on the other side and and so what we're able to do in our planning sessions that we start an engagement with is we're able to take your data and make reasonable assumptions if things are kind of out of whack because I always say if I get a large enough body of data I can normalize it because even bad data has patterns to it. And so, and, and because we really are just putting patterns to your data, we can kind of fix a lot of those things in the model on the fly and give you a picture of here's what your data can tell you if you d- decide to move ahead with this process. So here's what it actually has happened for the last three years. Now let's show you what's possible and do you, you know, can you, and we always say here's what you can do to fix it. Many of them will need us to help them to do some of it if they don't have uh, resources to be able to do it internally. We're good either way because I always like to tell people, says, listen, I don't have to look far to find something to do every day. You know, so I, I, I don't need to sell people on something. We're just happy to help when when people see us as, as the answer to that. And so, you know, certainly reach out, uh, just shoot me an email and uh, one of the folks on our team will, you know, follow up and, and happy to chat about kind of how we do it. Yeah. And how can people get in touch with you? Uh, the best thing is email greg.crabtree at cricpa.com. Uh, there's also a contact page on the book website is simplenumbers.me. There's actually some, uh, one of the things for those of you that want to try to take a stab at it yourself, which is always a good thing. Uh, there's some free tool downloads on the simplenumbers.me website, uh, some videos of, of talks I've given, you know, even more expansive um, there's a, if you actually just, uh, go on YouTube and search for Greg Crabtree or simple numbers, uh, quite a few of my presentations have been recorded and people have, have put them up, you know, so it's a great way to kind of learn, learn more about the concepts and those things as well. Highly recommend you guys do this. Uh, like I said, I had a, a good friend an entrepreneur friend of mine recommends your book a few years ago was really big eye opener. And I think I want some other people to have that same experience. I pass along your information, to a lot of people. So yeah, appreciate you know, I, I know we're going to reach a lot of folks with this episode. So thank you guys so much. And uh, thanks, Greg. And, and we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to TheInvestorMindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.